Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. I am uh, Chris Calsey, and I'm glad you're here. <laughs> so today we want to kick off a new series, and throughout the month we're going to be having a lot of fun, and uh, this series is called Oh What Fun, uh, because Christmas, right, it's the most wonderful time of the year. We, we, we kind of represent that by saying, Merry Christmas, right? I mean, that's kind of our phrase, but um, we all recognize that the, the reason it's the most wonderful time of the year, the very reason it is the most wonderful time of the year is often the same reason it's not, and it's the people, right? I'm, I'm holding a very classic mug from a movie scene that maybe perhaps some of you don't recognize, but it is probably one of my favorite moments. The line where he says, are you a surprise, Clark? He's like, Eddie, if I'd woke up tomorrow morning, my head's onto the carpet. I couldn't be more surprised than I am right now, right? That there's this element of Christmas time is the one time of the year where we cannot avoid the people that we have successfully avoided all year, right? People that you may have never, ever asked to dinner your entire life are sitting across the table from you. I mean, you think about it, like family are the friends that you were forced to have. And we all have a cousin Eddie or two in our family. And let's just be honest, if you look around your family and you don't see the cousin Eddie, you might just be cousin Eddie. <laughs> and so the people who come up to you and you wonder, like, what's the deal with them, right? Those at the office party, those who are in your family, those friends, those neighbors, those people that you're forced to be around, they're the reason sometimes it's not the most wonderful time of the year. And today I want to talk about how do we deal with those people that we just want to look at and say, what's your deal, right? Like, what, what is wrong with you? Was there lead paint chips in your home growing up? I mean, what happened? And uh, so today I think it's going to be fun. It's going to be super practical. We're going to jump into to how to deal with those difficult people because we all have them. And let's be honest, sometimes we are those difficult people that other people want to know how to figure out how to deal with. So for some of you, this may be therapy. For some of you, this may be tools and tactics, but throughout this month, um, we're going to learn how to put the Mary back into Merry Christmas. And if you're able to take me seriously, I think it's going to be a good message. So let me drink a little bit of my last little moose cup, and then we'll dive in. Right? And so um, I want to look at a passage today that it's an ancient letter, but what's useful about it is that it's written by a man who had dealt with difficult people to a church in a place surrounded by difficult people. It was a man who had personally experienced the challenge of dealing with difficult people, and here he is, one of the most famous Christians who have ever lived, a guy named Paul, and he's writing a letter to a small little church in one of the most influential and the largest city in the world at its time, the city of Rome. And to this church in the ancient city of Rome, he writes the letter that we now call uh, Romans, because that's where the name comes from. It's, it's a letter written to the place in Rome. And in the midst of the book of Romans, the first 12 chapters are these incredibly, the first 11, are these rich, theologically deep, uh, reflective kind of statements. Paul says some of the most profound words in all of Christianity. From, from a legal, logical standpoint, it's one of the most rationally argued um, kind of structures in all of ancient literature. It's an incredible book. And uh, around 12, he makes a, a really hard shift. He goes from this kind of uh, very abstract theological idea to this is what it looks like every day. He makes this shift into the practical. He spent 11 chapters of profound, and he spends the remaining chapters of the book 
and the practical. And it's in that shift to practical that I want to pick up because I think it's in this, this distinctive element of him going practical that he begins to teach us as he was teaching them how to deal with difficult people and in the process start to reclaim the Mary that is supposed to be Merry Christmas. And so if you, as Jason referenced, if you have the app, uh, it'll be in message notes. Um, the verses are already preloaded for you. If not, you'll see it on the screens and behind me. Um, and uh, if you've never downloaded the app, let me just do a free, it's free, which is, that's nice. There's not a lot of those things left anymore. Um, we're not tracking you. There's no, none of that stuff. That's what other people do who got in trouble this week about it. Um, but it's just a way of putting a tool in your hand to kind of help take the hope and the help that we believe happens on Sunday morning and to take it into your week. And so message notes, uh, the section's loaded, and we're going to find ourselves in Romans, the letter to the church in Rome, chapter 12, beginning with verse 17, this simple statement that Paul instructs them. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. And he can say that because he recognizes this is a church, a small group of people surrounded and inside of the largest city in the world. See, what's unique is Jews and Christians at the same time frame, uh, the, the Romans were a pretty open society. They were very, in a, in a lot of ways, they were really similar to American society today, which is crazy when you think it's been 2,000 years. Um, so they were really open. There was a lot of uh, kind of freedom religion-wise, but there was one rule that was pretty critical to, to the Roman religious understanding, and it was this idea that um, you could have all the gods you wanted in the world, but Caesar, the Roman ruler at the time, had to be the god. And there was a phrase that was common in its day where Caesar is Lord. And so it meant that the, the Romans believed that their, their leader was part divine. And so you had a responsibility as a Roman citizen to worship him, right? which is a little different. We, don't have, we may have leaders who sometimes think they're God, but we don't have any leaders who would outright say that they're God. And in the Roman society, this is the case. He believes he's God. And so the one rule was you could worship whoever you want as long as you worship Caesar too. And then the Jews, and specifically the Christians, come along and they break that rule. Not just break it. And in fact, they go as far, instead of saying Caesar is Lord, they actually start a new phrase that's, that becomes common in Christianity where you say Jesus is Lord. And that Jesus is Lord is taken from this Roman idea that Caesar is Lord. So they break the unbreakable rule. And because they break the unbreakable rule, they are ridiculed, and eventually they become outlaws, and some of them will end up losing their life, and in the midst of the Colosseum, they become spectators, they become the spectacle for the spectators where they're thrown in, and they are left to fight lions and bears without any weapons or tools. And Paul, in fact, writes this letter to this church inside of a city that he loses his life in eventually that Paul eventually will die in Rome under the hands of the very man who he had broken the unpardonable rule to. And so this is a brutal, extreme reality for where these people are living. And, and on the surface, this extreme situation isn't our life, right? I mean, you deal with difficult people, but you don't deal with deadly people. But I love the heavy lifting Paul does for us. He's speaking to people who are not just dealing with potentially difficult. They're dealing with people who want to damage them or even kill them. And so his advice to them is, is really good advice to us because 
If, if it works at that level, then it works when it's someone sitting across the table from you too. And so he gives them this first instruction of do not repay anyone evil for evil. And this, he starts this way and he even goes back to this idea of repaying and revenge um, later on in the section because that's the typical response, isn't it? When someone lashes out at you, when someone says something to you, someone does something, someone gets in your face with the finger or Cousin Eddie shows up, you want to lash out. It's that fight response that wells up inside of us. It's our default. It's repay, revenge, avenge, act out. It's what kids do and you're on the playground and you're like, I know you are, but what am I know I am, but what are you? Or I know you are, but what am I? Or your mama jokes start to fly out of your mouth. Like we know instinctively at growing up, that's just what you do. If you're pushed, you push back. And for the Jews, this is actually because this is a predominantly Jewish group of people. This is actually a part of their culture, but it's been confused. This idea of the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which maybe you've heard before that was a, a passage buried in an ancient Jewish text. And it was given by God to his people to establish a justice system. An eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth was originally designed and given to God's people in order to teach them the idea of like justice and consequences fitting the crime. And so if you steal a toy car, you shouldn't get the same punishment if you steal an actual car, right? That We would all say that there's... There's like justice, that there's a different consequence for different crimes. And this is what God was teaching when he first gave the eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth command. He was saying, look, there should be a recompense that is in direct kind of correlation to the crime that's committed. Like, make sure the punishment fits the crime. Well, somewhere along the line, the the confusion set in and they moved it out of the area of consequences and they moved it into the realm of responding and reacting and revenging. Oh, you did that to me. I'm going to do it back to you. But the challenge that Paul recognizes that even just recently studies have shown that while that may be the typical response, it's not the best response. I was just reading some um, research this week where in workplace and in schools that those who are bullied, whether it's by a coworker, a boss, or a schoolmate, that the, the typical response to want to lash out, to re- revenge, to ruminate, to think about all the things they said to you actually has more destructive elements than if you just let it go. That we tend to think, man, if, if, if I could get them back, right? And just start to imagine all the funny things you could do to them to kind of lash back out or all the fun things. I don't know about you, but I always have the best comebacks after they've walked away right? That, oh, if I could have just said that to him, that I would feel better. And what statistically has been shown in study after study, whether it's teenagers in the school system or whether it's adults in workplaces, that revenge always takes more from you than it gives you every single time. And that letting go is so much better than getting back at them. This is what Paul is saying. This He recognizes there's, there's something helpful about not just taking the the default response, but choosing a better way. Instead of repaying, actually do it the right way. And and sometimes the way people react, sometimes the way we try to get revenge, it can look a little passive too, right? I mean, this week I was flying, um, and uh, it was kind of a late flight, and it was close to midnight. And I don't know about some of you, but I start to like, my mental faculties start to drop drastically as I get tired and no longer have any helpful thought at all. 
and I'd gotten up and I went to the restroom, and um, I'm in the kind of, you know, the restroom, which is still a very bizarre experience to me when you're flying 35,000 feet above the air and you're peeing, right? That's just a strange thing for me. I, I just imagine, like, right now, someone may be sitting above me using the bathroom. I, I don't know about you, but those are the thoughts I have around 11 p.m., 11.30 p.m. in the restroom. And so I, I finish, I'm washing my hands, and I try to find the flush, the little thing, because, again, that's even, even stranger to me. Someone's actually flushing the commode above my head at 35. 5,000 feet, and I can't find the flusher, and I'm like, whatever, and so I leave. I go back to my seat, you know, like do the, the long walk past the first class, and I'm like, hey, hey, I know I used your restroom. I'm sorry. I had to go, and I, I sit back down, and as I sit down, and I'm so tired. It's been a long week. The stewardess, this flight attendant walks up to me, leans down, gets about this far on my face, and says, you know you could flush the commode, right? And I was like, What? I didn't even know what she said. She was like, our toilet works. And then she proceeds to, and so in the moment, I'm like, thank you. Because I don't even know what to say. And then she turns around, walks back through first class, opens the door, leaves the door open, and flushes the commode so everyone can hear it. And I'm like, for real? Because I don't know if you ever noticed, but like when you fly, a lot of times flight attendants have a very passive aggressive way. You're putting your bag up. You're the only person. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to remind you that everyone needs to be seated right now. You're like, oh, you mean me? Because I'm the only one standing up. <laughs> but some of us know that even passive aggressively, we, we lash out. And, and Paul is saying, look, there is a better way than just repaying. And that's what he picks up on as he goes through in the verse. He says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That he says, I know you want to repay. I know you want to lash out. I know you want to stick it to them. I know you want to get back. But there's another way. And what he does is he shifts the way they think. He gives them a different way of thinking than just an eye for an eye. And he in the course of these few verses, he starts to walk them through it. He starts with this first idea of uh, be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. This is a very helpful, practical piece of advice for how to deal with difficult people. That he's, he's saying, look, before you lash out, how about do a full mental sweep? I know right now, like when I'm sitting in that seat and someone says something to me, all I see is my perspective. But he's like, gain perspective Right, he says, notice, in the eyes of everyone. Take a step back and imagine what someone sitting at the other end of the, the dinner table sees in the midst of the conversation. Or look at what someone in the cubicle beside you sees as your boss walks up to you. What do, what do they see through their eyes? That, that gains perspective for you. And here's what's critical, because if you're willing to take a step back and see through the eyes of everyone, what you gain when you have that kind of sight is sometimes you have insight about what is actually right and wrong. And sometimes when you take that step back, you realize that you might have been the one who was wrong. Because oftentimes we, we mislabel and we think they're difficult when in fact we're being the difficult one. When I get tired, my wife has a phrase that she says to me that's kind of my wake-up call. She's like, are you sensitive? <laughs> and sensitive is our family's way of saying, you need to simmer down because everything I say, you respond negatively to. And my default is usually be like, I don't, I'm not sensitive. Oh, oh. 
Like, if I catch myself saying I'm not sensitive, I normally catch myself being sensitive. And last night, she's like, are you sensitive? And I was like, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> Last, I'm the problem, right? Because it feels so much easier to lash out. It just, it's easier, and it feels better in the moment just to respond and to scream at your child. Instead of taking the perspective and say, okay, through the eyes of everyone, was there a clear right or wrong? And to have the insight to maybe realize that you were the one who was wrong. And Paul says, look, he goes beyond just be careful to do what's in the right of eyes and everyone. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So he gives this command, live at peace with everyone. But then he conditions it twice, and these conditions are really helpful. He says, if it is possible, and as far as it depends on you. See, what he's trying to foster is not a revenge mindset. He's trying to foster a responsibility mindset, where you take responsibility for your actions. You take responsibility for the one person that you can control. Right, because oftentimes we fall into the trap of reversing it. This week, um, I was walking out of a restaurant. And I was on the phone. I was uh, a friend of a friend who was starting a business, and he was wanting to talk through marketing and nonprofit stuff. And so he was kind of asking some questions. And I'm sitting there on the phone, and and in the midst of this being a marketing conversation, I see this very strange looking kind of setup. I see this RV that looks just like Cousin Eddie, right? And then I see this crazy sign right beside it, and I'm like, oh. Market, I'm like having a conversation. This must be like a marketing ploy that this business is doing. So I snap a couple of pictures of it because I'm like, this might be useful, right? And so, and I'm still talking on the phone. I get in the car. I go to start my car. And I notice out of the corner of my eye, there's a woman who's now about an inch from my glass. Excuse me. Excuse me. And I'm on the phone and I roll down the window. Why'd you take a picture of me? Hello? Why did you take a picture of me? I'm like, ma'am, I'm on the phone. Why did you take a picture of me? And I'm like, I did not take a picture of you. Who are you? <laughs> I'm on the phone. And while she's screaming at me, why did you take a picture of me? I'm not noticing what's happened. The RV has pulled out of its parking spot and is now pulled behind me and is blocking me. And I'm, I'm sitting there with my car in reverse, and I realize Cousin Eddie has done blocked me in. <laughs> and she's screaming at me, why did you take a picture at me? And I, I'm on the phone, I was like, hold on one second. Ma'am, I don't know who you are. I was not taking a picture of you. I have a meeting to go to. I need to leave. And I rolled the window back up. And she walks off, she gets back in the RV, and the RV backs up. And I back up, and, and, it, and it happens to me that they back up straight into this spot. So when I pulled my car out, I'm facing them. And our cars are about 10 feet apart. And what I'm noticing is that they both have their phones out, and they're doing this. <laughs> and, and it's in the portrait mode. You know, it's not even like the landscape, so it would look good on the television. It's the other way. And, and, and not only that, they've got the light on while they're recording. And I'm like, that's not even good video recording. But anyways, they're both recording me. And I'm like, okay, I've obviously offended these people. I should just pull up and apologize and just explain. So I pull up, tell the person I'm on the phone who I've never met before, who's a friend of a friend, hey, I got to deal with something again. Hold on a second. I roll down the window and they start screaming at me. 
We see you. We're recording you. You get away from us. You get away from us. Like she's leaning across him. He's got his phone out the window in my face. And I'm like, look, I'm sorry. I was not taking pictures of you. Get away from us. Don't make him get out of the car. He'll get out of the car. He'll get out of the car. Then he starts to open the door. And then it's like all of time freezes for me. And then I'm sitting over here watching the perspective because I'm trying to be careful what's right in the eyes of everyone. And I'm trying now to, to try to live at peace. But then I have this out-of-body experience. And it's like, Chris, why are they upset? Well, they seem to be really upset because you took their picture. Well, did you take their picture? No, but they really think you took their picture. So it doesn't matter. Chris, what kind of people get that upset when you take their picture? I don't know, Chris. Maybe people who don't want to have their picture taken. Well, Chris, what kind of people who don't want their picture taken have an RV that looks like that with no license tag on it? I don't know. Probably kind of people that don't want to be found. Then why are you trying to find them, Chris? So I'm having all of this side conversation in my head. And then I step back in the body as dude is opening the door with his phone getting out of the car. I throw my car in reverse and I speed out of the parking lot. And he's following me down the parking lot with his phone. And see, so here's the thing. I'm sitting, driving away. My heart is pounding. And I'm living out this verse because sometimes you can't control crazy. <laughs> but you can control you. And this is what Paul's trying to say. Look, oftentimes we get into these moments and we are seeking to control that which we cannot. And in the process, we lose control of the one person we can. Because I'm not going to lie, there was a part of me when dude started getting out the door before I had that moment over there where I was thinking to myself, I was like, oh, you want to go there, big boy? Bam, I'll get out. I've done the mental calculations. He was small. I'm a big man. If I could just get him on the ground, I'll win. But then the other side of me is like, you know, you don't try to find people who don't want to be found, who live in RVs with no license tags, who get really upset when you document them, right? And the reality is Paul's trying to teach these people, look, you don't try to take revenge, take responsibility. And what's responsible? You're responsible for the one person you have control over you. You may not be able to control that bully at school, but you can control you in response to the bully at school. You may not be able to control that crazy boss that you're not exactly sure what pictures he has or what blackmail that he has that has put him or her into that position, but you can control you. You may not be able to control the coach who is crazy, who's demanding, but you can control you. And that shift of thought puts you back in control, which is critical. It's the better way than the way of repaying that Paul is warning them about. And so he goes on. He, he points out that, look, in the end, you don't even just take responsibility for you. You also recognize where he says, do not take revenge. That is, it is God's role. It's God's responsibility to avenge. But in those moments, we get all like righteous and we get all angry and our chest puffs out. And we're like, look here, little tiny dude in the RV. I can take you, right? Where you realize, you know what? God is the judge, not me. And part of the responsibility is taking the gavel out of your hand where you want to bring the judgment and taking the robe off of you and giving it back to God and saying, God, I understand that you're in fact control. That you've got the, you've got the crazy. And the crazy gets held accountable one day. And in the midst of saying that, I'm, I am not, hear me, I am not discounting boundaries. I am not okaying what people do to you that's wrong. 
This is not Paul's intent. He's not having a discussion about boundaries. He's having a discussion about what you do when you're in the midst of a battle and you're stuck. And I know that for some of us, the message that you need to hear today is boundaries. And I don't have time. But I, inside of message notes is a link to a book that if you're currently in processing through or recognize, man, boundaries are what I need to dig into, we've put a link inside the message notes for you to click on and to order this book. And I promise you, this book will be helpful. It's one of the quintessential books on boundaries written by a brilliant thinker and writer. And it's, it's inside your message notes. I would encourage you to ask for it for Christmas. It's about $9. It's on sale right now. Um, but Paul is about the battle. And so what does he do in verse 20 after he's kind of walked through, after verse 19, he says, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So in that moment with the RV, right, I recognize in verse 17 and 18 that I am not capable of living at peace with this person. I just need to get out or they're going to cut me to pieces. Right? And so I get away. But sometimes you can't get away. You're stuck. So what do you do? And so Paul recognizes that. And so he gives them, uh, he pulls an ancient passage from the book of Proverbs and he quotes it here. He gives them a tactic. He gives them a tool to deal with difficult people. That's an example for, uh, for them. And, and it's a really good example. But let me give you one before that. It's kind of, that's, uh, if you can't get away, you can at least try to avoid. That some of you, just to know that you have permission to do the dance around the house, or to use something that will make you sound really smart when you justify this in your head, called the Allen Curve. And the Allen Curve was uh, invented by an MIT professor in 1970s. And what they did was they found in, in the workplaces and in school spaces that if you, within six feet, if you find yourself within six feet of an annoying coworker or an annoying classmate, you are four times more likely to communicate, them, communicate with them physically and digitally than if you are 60 feet from them. And if you can get 100 feet from them, you are the equivalent of existing in another country altogether. So where this gets really practical is if you're sitting at the dinner table and you've got the one person who always wants to talk politics in the one way that you should not talk politics and they're sitting straight across from you, what that means is the Allen Curve says sit on the same side as they sit, but sit at the other end of the table. And what you'll have is a dinner that's probably somewhat removed from them and their conversation point. That if you're in a workspace that simply just by asking your boss, hey, could I work in another section of the building? That you might find that the influence or the impact or the annoyance that they bring starts to drastically decrease just by shifting position. If you can get away from them, if you go from six to 60 feet, they found statistically the communication level drops by four, by um, over four times. And it was both physical and digital. It was crazy. And so for some of us, that may be the way that you deal with it. For some of us, you, it may help you understand why you keep pe seeing people moving away from you. Why, why is these cubicles always open? Right? It's because they know the Allen curve and they've read the books and they're getting away from you. But this is a really kind of practical. But what happens if you can't get away? Paul says, look, because remember, these are people who are being persecuted. They're being ridiculed. They're being arrested. And so he says, what do you do if you can't get away? He says, instead of avoiding or trying to get away from them, you attack with kindness. In verse 20, in this reference to Proverbs, he says, look, if they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them water. 
I know the instinct is to revenge and to repay, but I'm telling you the better way is to do good to them. Love them. Do kind things for them. If you've got a boss who's demanding, who's always cutting you down, in your emails, compliment them. Say something nice. Well, what if they, well, they're going to lash out no matter what. Remember, you can't control them. You're probably not the problem they are. But you take responsibility for the one person you have responsibility to, which is you. And in your email, in the way that you interact publicly, you show them kindness. You kill them with kindness. You wear them down with love. And again, they don't deserve it. Probably not. But remember what he said right before? Where he says it's God's job to judge? Let's just be real. We don't deserve it either. And I'm so grateful that I don't get what I deserve. And if I don't get what I deserve, I should probably let that flu and through and flow and give people what they don't deserve too. Because I'm so grateful for people who were merciful to me when I deserve far worse. And so he's just reminded them of that. And so practice kindness. If it's that person, that family member, and you keep getting stuck with because you seem to be the one that takes one for the team, you can do things like, wow, I've never had that thought before. Thank you. It doesn't mean that you, you, you may be thinking in your head, that is, the, that is the scariest thing I've ever heard a human being say. But you're not acknowledging what they're saying. You, you're truthfully saying, I have never had that thought before. Thank you. I got to go get some more drink. Do you want anything? I'll get it for you. And you just walk away and get them something. But there's something about killing them with kindness. And, and there's a power in it. And Paul says, hey, look, do this. Engage with them. Be kind to them. Instead of trying to repay, do something good instead. That that's the better way. And that if you find yourself in those situations, whether it's a bully at school who constantly says mean things to you, like, right, let's just be real. You couldn't put me, if somebody said, hey, I will give you a million dollars, all you have to do is get in the time machine and go spend the day in middle school. I'd be like, you keep your million dollars. Right, because... Like middle school teenagers, they're mean. I'm convinced there's not, there are a few things meaner in the world than an 11 year old or a 13 year old little girl or a little boy dealing with their own insecurity. They just lash out. Right? They're just horrible sometimes. And the default is to be like, I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? Or to push them because they just pushed you. But what if you said something kind? And they were like, what? They're like, you're stupid. You know what I've noticed about you? You're really smart at math. What? Well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But that's what I'm saying is you're really good at math. I just wanted you to tell you I noticed that. I got to go. See you later. They're like, did you just compliment me? That there's a power in acting in kindness because it keeps you in control of the one person you have control over. And this is where Paul is building on this, ends with this passage. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He, he, he lands the plane with this statement. 
He's like, let me, let me make it very clear to you. The reason you do this is so that you, you, look, you may not win in the battle, but it doesn't mean you have to lose either. He's like, and don't be overcome by evil. Don't let the evil or the difficult or the damaging or the stupid or the mean win over you. Instead, make your posture a different posture altogether and try to win over them. And to do kindness and to do love and to treat the meanest people in the world if you're stuck in front of them and see them for who they could be. Treat them for the way, not the way they deserve, but the way that you've been treated by God before. And the reason Paul can stay that bold statement is you have to remember this grand kind of narrative of the book of Romans is Romans 1 through 11 is all about the mercy of God and what Jesus did on the cross. The reason he can say good can overcome evil is because the message of Christianity is that good overcame evil. That God steps into this earth, right? What we celebrate this month, that he steps into this earth as a baby in this 33-year declaration that you are loved and that you are wanted and that you are desired and that no amount of relational separation can separate you from him. That he steps into this world and he lives in this world and he deals with all the brokenness that we call life. And he gets to the age 33 in the midst of three years of ministry where all the world is beginning to know about him and he's doing miracles and he's transforming lives and he's demonstrating this love and out of nowhere he gets arrested and he gets killed and the biggest sham justice ever but Paul says hey but remember three days after they killed him what happened he came back from the dead and where evil tried to triumph victory was to the good right where Evil thought they had killed him. They found that there was a vacant tomb. And that's why Paul can say boldly, look, we can do this. We can live like this because it is the very essence of who we are. He has overcome evil. And if he has overcome evil, then we can too. But I think there's a personal tinge in this. Remember, this is Paul, the most famous Christian who has ever lived outside of Jesus. But what's Paul's story? Paul had been a difficult person. Paul is the man behind the very first murder of a Christian. The very first Christian who ever dies for their faith, Paul is the one who sanctions it. He's like, no, you don't understand. The reason I know good can overcome evil, the reason I know kindness can make a difference in the midst of a difficult, damaging, deadly person is because my name used to be Saul. I used to kill Christians. I used to make my living by hunting them down. And now I make my life by living for him. The damaging, the difficult, the deadly, that was me. And good overcame me. And for some of you, maybe the reality is, is that I recognize a bully may not be at your workplace. It may not even be at your school. It may be at home. And that for some of us, just to be reminded that maybe sitting across the table this Christmas, there could be a miracle waiting to happen. And it's born out of the moment where you choose to not repay evil with evil, but you choose to overcome it with good. And that Paul says, look, that was my life story before I met Jesus and his people. And so you and I, 
we can start to move back and press into Mary and the Merry Christmas. If we're willing to move out of the repay mindset and to start to think with responsibility and to start to practice love and kindness even when in the midst of evil and damaging and destructive conversations, that what we'll find is what Paul experienced in his personal life, you and I can experience this holiday season, that good can overcome evil, even Cousin Eddie, too. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for uh, the grace that you, uh, you gave us and the love that you held out for us. And we don't deserve what you did for us, and I pray that that would help us be mindful as we interact with difficult people. Thank you for this truth, these teachings that in the midst of incredibly challenging circumstances that this letter was written into, that there was a difference that was made by it. And I pray that as we step into office parties, as we step into uh, family Christmas gatherings, um, or as we just go home this afternoon, that we would find that good can overcome evil and that we can be people who don't fall into the repay mindset, but who fall into the responsibility mindset. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. I want to thank you for being here today. We're going to continue the series throughout the month, and I want to encourage you. It's going to be fun. We've got some surprises. Um, they're not always going to look like this, um, but we're excited about this series and all that this month um, contains. Uh, one thing that just to make you aware of, um, December 24th is going to be a big day, and we're, we're going to have two services, and I've already told you we're giving the offering away. Um, we're just going to channel it to the good that we do in our neighborhood and around the world. And, um, and so kind of the kickstart, just this season of generosity that we wanted to do, we um, rolled out last week this generous act that we wanted to focus on. We want to partner with a local nonprofit called Gifts for Kids and actually provide Christmas for families that they've identified in our community that can't afford Christmas presents. And uh, you blew me away. I, I've always known, and I say it every single week, that you're sitting in the room with some of the most generous people in the world. Um, but within, within 12 hours, no, take that, about eight hours after the message, every single kid on that list was gone. You, you, you filled every single one of the slots. And I made a promise to you last Sunday, hey, if you do it, I'll be back. And uh, we, we sent out um, just an email Monday saying, hey, if you wanted to be a part and you missed it, um, you were listening online or you, you dived into the podcast later in the week because you were traveling, um, we, we put more kids there. So just be aware, if you want to cl click on Gift for Kids, um, follow the instructions in the link. You can sponsor one of these local families, buy a gift. Uh, we kind of laid it all out for you. We do all the heavy lifting. All you have to do is provide the money. And, and, and this will practically bring that expression of love and hope on a Christmas morning. And I just want to say thank you to the people who already showed up and, and helped us to show love to five families. And I'm really excited about the opportunity to be able to show that generosity more. Another thing that you guys have done, and um, probably weren't aware of it, but in the midst of um, our nation recently has seen a lot of just really tragic shootings. And uh, uh, last month, there was a tragic shooting in a church in Texas. And um, just wanted you to know, your generosity uh, allowed us with a group of other churches to step in. And we, we were able, along with these other churches, to cover the cost for all the funerals of the people who were involved in that tragedy. 
And yeah, and so um, your generosity, your generosity doesn't just change our community. It allows us to be hope and help in places and spaces all around the world. And so I just wanted you to know the good that you're doing with your generosity. It was incredibly inspiring. Um, and I, I feel like you should just be aware of that. And that's why we have this moment. Um, we really believe that the message can be hopeful and it can be helpful. And before we rush out into the day with Christmas shopping and busy schedules and life, uh, we wanted to carve out a little bit of space. One is for those people in the room who call Encounter Church Home to practice your generosity, and they do that through the app or through the basket that gets passed around. But for others of us, it's a space to kind of step back and to kind of reflect on our lives and to say, okay, you know what, here's that boss that come to mind when he was speaking, or here's that schoolmate who kept popping the head, here's that girl, here's that boy, here's that teammate that was in my mind as he was talking about difficult people, and to just to be able to write in the message notes, this week, here's what I'm going to do when they say what they say, or when they do what they normally do, and just to kind of take advantage of this little three-minute moment we have left, just to reflect and to form a plan today, so that we don't fall into that reactionary mindset. And um, you'll, you'll notice all this stuff's in the app, Starting Point. And if there's any way we can pray for you um, in the app or just swing by Starting Point, we would love to. So I want to thank you for being here. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing. We'll respond and practice.